Welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan, an in-depth look at our industry from our very own Chief Medical Officer, who will talk with other medical and industry professionals on the changing and evolving landscape of the healthcare system from the inside. Thanks for joining us. My name is Stan Schwartz. I'm an infectious diseases physician with decades of experience in healthcare as a student, a teacher, a fellow, a researcher, a practicing physician in both solo and group practices, a health system executive, and now a healthcare entrepreneur, and as I get older, as a patient. I want to share my 360-degree view of healthcare with you. My thanks to Zero Studios for support of this podcast. My guest today is Larry Boris. He's the executive director of the National Association of Workside Health Clinics. We'll go in depth into what employers and benefit consultants need to know about employer-sponsored direct health care. Larry, thanks for joining us and sharing your expertise. Please tell us about yourself. Well, thanks very much, and uh, nice to always be with you, Stan. Uh, yeah, so I started my career, frankly, back uh, in uh, 19... 19- uh, 78, working for the uh, Illinois State Medical Society, looking after the interest of doctors. <clears throat> Spent 17 years there uh, and then jumped the fence from the uh, health provider side to the purchaser side of healthcare when I joined the Midwest Business Group on Health in 1991, uh, looking after the interest of uh, uh, employers and trying to help them get more value from their benefit spend. Uh, while I was there, uh, back in uh, 2011, we did a strategic survey of uh, companies to see what were the directions that large self-funded corporations uh, were taking as relating to healthcare benefits. And we found that close to a third of those companies had a healthcare provider coming at the work site uh, either a few days a week or longer uh, to treat the care and the needs of the population. So we created an organization called the National Association of Worksite Health Centers. Uh, to serve employers' interests and needs and sharing of information and just the ability to, to talk to their peers about this type of healthcare benefit. So now I uh, serve as the executive director of uh, the National Association of Worksite Health Centers, also called NAWIC, N-E-W-H-C. Uh, and we have over 100 companies, uh, large employers, uh, public and private employers, mid-size and small. We have union, Taft-Hartley plans, and others who offer on-site and site mobile and virtual health centers uh, for their active employees, their members, spouses, and dependents uh, all across the country in all industries and all sizes. So do you primarily represent the, the providers, the doctors, or the employers that have the providers and doctors? No, we, well, we, the members of the organization, are two-thirds are employers uh, or union Taft-Hartley plans uh, that uh, contract or offer by themselves uh, health providers at the work site. So probably about uh, 25% of these uh, organizations actually hire uh, physicians and nurses and other staff, uh, build the center themselves and manage it and deal with it. Uh, probably about 40, 50% contract out to a third-party uh, service provider or a clinic vendor who actually will do a total turnkey operation. And about 20% are run by hospitals, health systems, and uh, local medical groups. And sometimes there's actually a hybrid mix of those. Are the ones that do it themselves generally bigger employers and smaller employers higher on the job? Higher not necessarily. Yeah, not necessarily. Uh, what we find is employers who get into this kind of benefit uh, are doing what I call employer-managed health care. 
Uh, and so it doesn't matter either your size or your industry or your location. It's really the, the, the strategic approach, the, the culture of that employer, uh, whether that's a focus on wellness and fitness and productivity and well-being. Uh, and those companies who are very frustrated with the variability and quality and cost of healthcare in their local communities tend to be those who step forward uh, and to uh, offer this kind of benefit. Uh, so you could have a jumbo employer who has uh, people in every zip code in this country who doesn't have centers uh, because they just don't see the, the need for it or it's their, not their core business uh, or they're focused more on bottom line costs. Uh, and you can have a very small company that has uh, 25 people in a small community who's offering a, a nurse and a physical therapist and, and others uh, at the work site because they're really concerned about the health and mental and physical health of their populations and to make sure that they get good outcomes. So you mentioned quality and service. What can these direct primary care clinics or, or providers do, for example, differently than, than say, a, a health system clinic or an independent group of doctors? So the key thing here is, uh, from an employer's perspective, how do I keep my people on the job uh, healthy and productive. And what we find is if people have to leave the work site to uh, see their doctor, to have physical therapy, to pick up a prescription or a medical appliance, they're gone three to four hours. They go home, they feed the dog, they may not come back to work. Uh, and that, it, when you multiply the average salary of, of employee times the number of people who leave work times three to four hours, it's a significant loss. Uh, in addition, you've got people who leave the work site, go to emergency rooms or immediate care centers, which are the highest cost in our healthcare uh, industry uh, for non-emergency reasons. So if you can offer health providers who can deliver care to people uh, at the work site, who can address non-emergency situations there, who can keep them on the job or back to work fairly shortly uh, and give them easy access, it makes all the difference in the world uh, for an employer and for the employee. You know, people just don't want to uh, see doctors or get care after hours on weekends at night. Uh, it, it's, it takes up their, their uh, limited uh, personal time. But if you have a health provider at the work site that you can see within you know, 15, 20 minutes or make sure you can get into the next day, it's important, particularly during the, these COVID times where it's been so difficult for people to see a primary care doctor uh, or to get into a, a clinic, uh, having immediate access, which most of these centers offer, either same day or next day access is really important. Larry, are the employers who generally do this, are they able to actually quantitate the savings in time, the savings in cost? I mean, is there hard data to support that? Yes, absolutely. Um, many of the employers uh, and the third party vendors, uh, whoever provides their centers, use electronic medical record systems. Uh, these centers typically uh, can compare what the cost would have been in a local community versus those uh, offering at the work site. So they'll use the same CPT codes, for example, for whatever procedures or, or uh, service or visits there are. Uh, and uh, they can find that, uh, again, reducing the cost of emergency visits, reducing the cost of unnecessary care uh, services, and then again, what people leave. But it, it's a much broader than just a cost issue. Uh, clearly, employers want to reduce their bottom line health spend, uh, but we we rather look at what I call a VOI or value on investment approach rather than an ROI or return on capital. 
So when an employer is looking to see, you know, what's what am I getting out of this? Is it worthwhile doing? Is it worth the investment and the time? They look at not just my my reduced people having to leave work and the cost of that reduced emergency room visit. They're also looking at increased satisfaction, better outcomes, immediate access to care, higher quality care, uh, more recruitment and retention of employees who find this the most treasured benefit. You know, uh, we, we clearly uh, learned that this is something that people really uh, enjoy. Uh, they like the quick access to care. They like having a constant provider. Uh, and they, and what's really critical and, and makes for success or not is uh, the trust and confidentiality they have in these providers to protect their information from an employer uh, uh, using it for performance evaluation, for example. Uh, so there's a lot to go into it. Does, you know, I have heard some employees or members may be hesitant to go to a clinic that the employer runs because they are fearful that if they talk about drugs or alcohol, it'll get back to the employer. What kind of safeguards are present? So typically, uh, and many manufacturers have had uh, occupational health uh, first aid triage centers in the past uh, to treat uh, worksite injuries and accidents. Uh, what we find is that in those cases, uh, the occupational physician or nurse that's there, uh, their job, their, their role, and, and under law, they are allowed to share the person's status with their supervisor, uh, with the employer, relating to their ability to return to work, uh, and that's protected. And so they have that direct communication. And, and when someone goes in to see the occupational health doctor or nurse, uh, they're pretty well aware that it, uh, their status is going to be reported. Now, you're right. If, in fact, the clinic now decides to offer primary care, chronic disease management, behavioral health services, uh, et cetera, that's a whole different situation. And the laws are written as such is that you cannot share someone's personal information uh, to their employer if it does not relate to their work status. Now, the challenges that uh, this causes is that when an employer already has an occupational health provider there and now wants to offer primary care, people sometimes are concerned that that provider will also be sharing this personal information. So many employers end up hiring separate providers or have a separate vendor or a separate clinic for the personal health care so that it's totally distinct because that issue of uh, confidentiality and trust uh, can destroy a center uh, or if people feel confident about it, can actually make it work. We had an experience, you know, I, one of the companies I consult with was trying to determine whether their direct primary care, their, they had a nearsight clinic, was actually valuable for them and they wanted to know how good the care was, we asked the primary care group, this direct primary care group, to pony up some data on how well patients with diabetes were being cared for using the standard measures, you know, as the industry talks about, HEDIS measures, health health effectiveness data and information uh, statistics. And they were actually able to get population data, not individual person data, but population data on their employees with diabetes, hypertension, asthma, which was something they couldn't get from their traditional, the, about the employee, the population of the employees that went to, you know, external primary care docs. How, how common is it in the worksite nearsite world for those providers to actually provide quality data that the employers can use to judge how good the care is? Well, frankly, that's a, a fundamental requirement 
uh, in the performance uh, uh, guarantees and in the contracts of the providers that deliver these types of centers to employers. Uh, as I said, most of them, virtually all of them have electronic medical record systems. And so they collect the data and it's available to them and they're able to uh, actually address a population health strategy approach. You know, in, in a an ideal situation, you've got the worksite center being really the hub of the wheel of all the employers on site uh, and uh, benefit programs, wellness programs, pharmacy, uh, chronic disease management, et cetera, so that all the data from all these other vendors filter in to the worksite center and the employer then can get a, a total picture of, you know, what's the prevalence of conditions, where are people going, where are the costs. Uh, and, you know, the other thing that's important to remember is that worksite centers the vast, vast majority of them are done on a capitated basis. So there is no fee for service here. There's no direction or motivation or incentive for the providers to do additional units of services that are not needed. Uh, the, the, the visits tend to be 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, it's a very uh, holistic kind of care. And then they, when they gather all the data, they can do a soft handoff to other kinds of programs or services. So more uh, engagement in the, what the employers uh, programs are, and then they have all this data they can identify and compare, and so improve the outcomes of people with chronic conditions, reduce their risks, and keep them, again, at work and productive. Well, it sounds like that really is a function of a difference in the payment model, not necessarily that they're worksite or onsite, but they're not being paid for, you know, the amount of, just for the amount of time or the number of clicks on the EMR, on the electronic mm -hmm. health record. Hey, one of the things I have heard from employers that have direct primary care, worksite direct primary care, is that sometimes it's difficult to get spouses and dependents in. And that is especially so when the clinic is actually located on the worksite. What are your thoughts about that? So there's no doubt that the dependents often are uh, some of the highest cost uh, coverage uh, for an employer's population. And so one of their objectives, and, uh, and, and it's just not uniformly across all worksite centers, but many of them want to include the dependents, uh, particularly those above 18, to utilize the center. So some of the strategies that you need to use uh, are dependent upon the employer's location, their space available, uh, and what's, what they want to do. Because if you have the center uh, in the factory, uh, where it's uh, potentially safety issues, security issues, confidentiality issues. You won't get spouses. You won't get dependents in there. Uh, to, so many employers are recognizing you've got to put this outside of uh, the, the actual work area. So sometimes in the parking lot, sometimes in a mobile area. Uh, so, but many employers have this, uh, created a, a near-site strategy. So it could be one or more centers that are near of the work as well as near where uh, people live or in a, a, a suburban area or, or maybe three or four miles from the work site. In addition, some employers have actually tried to uh, contract with an, say a hospital system or medical groups or immediate care network uh, so that those centers that are open uh, 24 seven or open more hours in the work site, uh, people can go to. Uh, but clearly there's a challenge. You've got to offer incentives to get the other people to, to participate. Again, you've got to make sure that uh, the services are, are accessible for them. And of course, they're, because 60% um, of these centers don't charge anything, there's no out-of-pocket cost for people to use the center to get them services, the drugs, the labs. So there's a variety of strategies you have to use, but it's no doubt it's an ongoing challenge for people. 
you said about 60% would have no copay or coinsurance or deductible to see on site. What would be the benefit for the other 40% to charge if it's such a good incentive? Well, some employers believe people have to have skin in the game. Uh, if you don't have to pay something, maybe you don't show up for the visit uh, and then you're wasting the provider's time. Uh, so there's always going to be a belief. Now, typically the cost, if there is a cost, is going to be uh, much less than it would be if someone went into local community. And under the IRS code, if, if an employer offers health savings accounts, a person with an HSA must pay some mandatory copay, some what they call fair market value fee, in order to get access to a center that offers more than just first aid and triage. So all those employers, even if they don't charge anything to anybody else, if people have HSAs, they've got to charge some small copay. And typically, uh, it's uh, below, uh, as I said, the community rate. Some employers charge as little as $10. Some charge just below the Medicare rate, provider rate. Uh, but there's an opportunity to do that. But uh, it doesn't seem to impact utilization very much, again, because of the easy access, low cost, and comfort that people have with the provider there. So if they're not required to have first dollar cover, if, they're, if they do have to charge something, you're saying that that doesn't make the clinic less successful in terms of people accessing it? That's correct. Uh, not surprisingly, the, the, the key determinant is whether a clinic is successful is the providers who are there. Now, 60% or more of these centers are manned by what they call mid-level providers, nurse practitioners or physician assistants. Now, there is always a physician oversight. Uh, many centers, though, have a physician nurse practitioner team uh, who are there. Uh, so that's really the, the, the makeup, and uh, people are comfortable with that. Is the whether or not the clinic has a physician determined by just the number of people that can potentially access the clinic? What would determine whether you need a doc or not? Well, it, frankly, like in many other things in an employer setting, it depends what the CEO wants. If senior management wants a physician nurse uh, led team, uh, that's what'll happen. Some of the vendors in the, in the market, uh, that's the only kind of model they offer. Uh, but most of the time, as I said, because of cost basis, uh, mid-level providers are used because they can do so much of what people need in primary care. Uh, and then you can have a physician come in as needed. And many of these centers will have a specialist or a physician uh, come in uh, a few times during the week anyway. I work with a few companies that have nearsighted, or actually they have shared nearsight clinics. And what do I need to tell these companies to do if they don't feel like they're getting adequate value? Well, like in any other health benefit, you've got to see, you know, are your people getting access to the centers when they want to? Uh, is the care they're getting appropriate care? Uh, are, are they getting, are they improved uh, in their conditions? Uh, is the cost comparable? Uh, is uh, the people's ability to understand uh, the care they're getting? Is there follow-up? Is there good communication with that? You know, all the things that you'd expect from a primary care practice, you want to expect from a nearsight or on-site center. Uh, the experience should be much better, as I said, because the, the difference is, is that the providers who work for an employer or in a, an on-site, near-site center, they understand or they should be understanding the total benefits that an employer offers. What's the culture? What are some of the physical uh, tasks that people have to have? What's the kind of role they have? What's this person going back to? You know, is it a, is it a situation where it's a very organization that has lots of uh, languages and culture changes? You know, 
the, the provider has to be able to practice outside the walls of the center and be part of the employer's population rather than uh, part of a community hospital system or provider network. You know, we've got some employers who actually recommend that the employer interview every provider who's delivering care at the center to make sure they understand that they're part of the employer team, that they're not going to be an issue uh, because we've, we have uh, centers failing when people don't like the doctor and then word uh, passes quickly behind them. Uh, so for example, in one case, we've had an employer who's uh, most people, it was a high tech company and most of the injuries and issues uh, happened uh, on the ball field. And so they expected that their medical staff would be in t-shirts and shorts on the ball field or in the call center or in the factory. So it's, it's a different kind of medical practice. A lot of providers really enjoy it, not having to be tied to fee-for-service, having really an ability to deliver total holistic care and integrated care. Uh, but some providers are uncomfortable. They don't, you know, they like to stay within their four walls of the center and they like to practice a certain way and they don't want to be bothered. And so that's why you have some centers successful or not. In terms of determining how well the center is working, you know, surveys and things like that, should that be the task of the employer or should the direct primary care be doing that to, you know, to validate their own successful operation? Well, it, this is always a partnership. Uh, what we find is the most successful centers are those where whomever is delivering the medical services is not just a vendor or a provider for the employer, but actually a partner. So they work together to identify how are they going to collect this kind of information. They're going to do joint surveys, or at least they're going to spell out what kind of surveys will be done. Typically, the provider will do most of those surveys, uh, will collect that data, but the employer itself might want to do it. Uh, you know, many times people will talk to a provider rather than to their employer about, excuse me, these kinds of benefits and things. And so, uh, you know, I think it's something they both have to work on, but they both need information. You want to find out, you know, are people able to get in when they want to? Are they satisfied uh, with the care? Do they feel they're getting respect uh, with the providers? Um, are they able to get the follow-up information uh, good? Uh, uh, are they getting better? Uh, if they have a question, can they get back to it? So all the, the same kind of things are in the, uh, the CAP surveys uh, that are being used, or even in the, uh, uh, the hospital surveys uh, that are, are done on satisfaction. Similar, those things should be tied in. But in many cases, you're looking at the registration process, the, the ability to get to see the providers, the follow-up, um, and the understanding and care provided. So... You talked about a collaboration between the employer and the clinic. How often should they get together? Should it be in person? And, and you know, should the reports be going back to the sea level to human resources? Tell us, so, tell us what the most successful collaborations are. So the ones that are most successful uh, have multiple levels of reporting. Uh, there's weekly reporting on utilization and any issues or operational uh, concerns. There's monthly reporting on the number of people being used. Uh, whether you're filling appointments, uh, how the systems are going, uh, whether you, you're having uh, any challenges, uh, the quarterly and annual reports. And it, again, it's got to cover all the things I mentioned that's related to value. It's got to look at uh, delivery of care, quality of care, satisfaction, uh, people's responsiveness, participation in programs, engagement in programs, uh, costs. Uh, you know, are, what are people doing? Are there, how many people are in the hospital? Are people with high-risk conditions getting lower risks or are they getting worse? 
uh, what are the, and then and overall, what its generic scores? Uh, how people who are on uh, statins are they getting better? Uh, what's the the total picture of care has to be reviewed between those delivering the care and the employer uh, to see if the employer's objectives are really being reached and if people are being satisfied. If you've got a center whose utilization is increasingly uh, high, uh, you're going to you, you want to be checking that. But if you find people are not going or they're not going certain hours, you want to know. The other key thing you want to find out is you start out with a basic scope of services. What do you want to expand to? You find that people, for example, maybe they're leaving work for physical therapy. So you want to bring physical therapy on site. Maybe they're leaving work to see a chiropractor. So maybe you want to bring a chiropractor on site. Whatever the case might be, if you've got a fitness center, you can expand that. So a key part of the analysis of the results of the value of the center is where other what other services can we offer that people will take advantage of? Or where are people leaving the work site for things we could do? Should we have a nutritionist on site? Do we need a health coach? Do we need a cancer navigator? You know, what kind of things can we do? And in many cases, it's forming partnerships with local health providers or health systems or other organizations that can supplement what they have. Or in some cases, maybe they're doing a lot of imaging and they're finding that the cost of using uh, the hospital imaging center is too high. So the partner and the employer look for local imaging centers that they can contract with or laboratories or physical therapy. So there's lots of things you can look at, but if you're not constantly monitoring and measuring, you're never going to know what happens. And just a sidebar, one of the frustrations I've always had in my career in working with employers is it didn't matter whether it was a smoking cessation program, diabetes program, uh, arthritis, 25% of employers never measured the results of the program. They never knew whether it was working or not or getting value, what people thought, and it was just throwing money out the door. And so in, in my life and work now, we constantly emphasize you know, with no, no, without measurement, there's no way of knowing whether your uh, thing is working or not. You've got to take time. You mentioned wellness. I know there are some DPC providers that kind of had an, that, that offer add-on programs for wellness, you know, that have biometric screening and personal health assessments. What's your thought about that? Or should they stay in the single swim lane? No, I, I mean, I, I think you, uh, when you're offering these kinds of services, uh, you want to expand the scope for whatever the needs are of that population. Uh, and if someone, as I said, has cancer and needs the guidance and direction, I, if you can link them with a cancer navigator or advocate, someone who can get them through the moray of all the things you've got to decide and the different providers who are out there and what's going to happen with their benefits and their job and their life, uh, it's going to be incredibly helpful. Uh, we found that, uh, for example, musculoskeletal and pain management was a, one of the top three issues for most of the employers, but many of them did not offer uh, the kind of uh, support that they needed. People, again, were going off-site. So now we're seeing more and more what I will call physical health integrated teams. So you have a physician, a physical therapist, a chiropractor, acupuncturist, a massage therapist working together as a total team, not as independent practitioners, uh, but working together reduces the need for opioids and other uh, medications and keeps people uh, the ability to, again, stay at work and get the care they need often early on and not just after they have an injury. You, um, what, if an employer decides, you know, I need to explore this, what do they do? What's, the, what's their next step? Contact well, clearly, yeah, I mean, they clearly, contact a local provider. Uh, you know, the first thing they need to do is to look at their data. 
I mean, you can't get into a program like this, which can be very expensive and, uh, unless you understand there's going to be a real need. So some of the things you need to do is uh, if you have a broker consultant, whoever has your data, look at that. Determine you know, where, how many people are leaving work to go to emergency rooms to get care and immediate care centers uh, who are not getting access to the providers they need. What's the prevalence of our conditions? You know, if, if we've got an average age of 23, we're going to have certain kinds of services we want compared to we have an average age of 48 uh, or 50. Um, so once you get an idea of what kind of conditions you have uh, and where the costs and where people are going, then you have, really have to ask the population through surveys, focus groups. You know, if you offer services at the worksite, will people come? Uh, will spouses come if, uh, if you offer these things? Will people take the time? Uh, and, and what kind of structure in your work policy will you do? Will you let people come during the work hours or after work? Are you going to charge or not charge? What are your objectives? And then once you figure out what your objectives, you know, you want to offer easy access, low or no cost. You want people to be productive. You want to offer a certain core of uh, uh, primary care services. Then you go and you ask your consultant or broker in the marketplace, you know, who's the local providers? What, who's the third-party vendors? Or frankly, one of the things that, that I think most employers like to do, they look at their peer companies. Who else in the community or in my industry or who I benchmark against has a, a non-site or near-site or shared center? And can I visit them? And I can, can I learn how it works? Can I talk to the people who work there? Can I talk to the people who go there um, and determine, are they saving money? Are they, are they meeting their objectives? Are they keeping people productive? Is quality better? Um, and then what's this vendor like? And then look at the options that are out there. Should you want to do it yourself? Or do you want to hire somebody else to do it? Do you want to provide a health system? Um, in many cases, uh, maybe many is too strong a word. In a number of cases, uh, the employers don't feel the local health system or medical groups are meeting their needs in the community. They don't like the quality, the responsiveness, so they go to a third-party vendor to bring in providers. Um, but you need to give yourself the option of looking at all of those and then do some comparisons. And then you'll get an idea. And then, of course, in the RFPs, you want to put down what are the performance levels you're looking for to make sure that you don't wait until you selected someone to see if they can perform the right way. So to me, those are the, the major steps you take. Is there a place an employer can get kind of a, an RFI template if they wish to do that? Sure. So uh, NAWHC has a, a plethora of information in the clearinghouse of data uh, for organizations who want to learn how to offer this kind of benefit. Uh, what other employers are doing, uh, what are the kinds of services and staff and who the vendors are in the community. Uh, clearly, we do this primarily for those who join as members, uh, but if someone would just want to call, visit the website, uh, they can get a lot of information. We'd be glad to start them out. Right, please. So final question. You talked about nearsight clinics. How near does a nearsight clinic need to be to be effective? Uh, it depends on the geography uh, and the, the employer's location and what they have. A lot of employers don't get into this because they don't have the space for it. Uh, so they'll look someplace nearby. It could be across the street. It could be a mile away. Uh, if, you know, if you have a large population of over 500 employees in one location, typically an on-site would make more sense. Uh, but for near-site, it could be uh, like a media care immediate care centers in the community. Uh, they could be several miles away just so people can reach them. But you want to have a, a location that people can get to and get back uh, within a fairly short time. I mean, when I used to live in Chicago, 
people just going from downtown to the suburban area could be gone two or three hours. Uh, so it depends on your geographic community and the travel. Ideally, you want the near site within a mile of the location of the workforce. Uh, but again, if you want to have a network of near sites uh, that allow people from different locations, that would be helpful. In addition, there's some vendors in some uh, communities where they've created uh, uh, a common vendor, at, but uh, near sites all around and different employers. So the employee or their family, regardless of where they live, can go to any employer site because it's the same vendor and they still are able to share that information back to the core place. Great. Hey, Larry, one last, one, one more last, last question. What would be the most important success factor? The most important factor to predict that installing director or near site or work site clinic will be successful? It's all about utilization. Uh, you know, if you, if you get 60, 70% of people utilizing it, or ideally the, the, that 18 to 20% of people who have chronic disease who cause 85, 9 to 90% of your costs utilizing the center, it is successful. If you've got a utilization of uh, 10, 20%, uh, you're not going to be uh, having that center very long. Great. Larry, if people want to contact your organization, can you tell us what the website is? Sure. Anybody can go to www.nawhc.org, uh, or they can call me directly at 847-606-5527. And my email is l-b-o-r-e-s-s -S at nawhc.org. Thank you Great. so much for the time. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today has been Larry Boris, who's the executive director of NWAH. I'll never get that right. org. And thank you very much for your insight. This episode today has been brought to you by Zero Studios from our sponsor, Zero.Health, also on the web. Larry, thanks very much. And for our listeners, we'll see you next month. We hope you've enjoyed the time with our very own Dr. Stan for 360 degrees of healthcare with Dr. Stan Schwartz, a part of Zero Studios. Tune in, subscribe, and review our podcast to keep current with the ins and outs of the medical and healthcare industry from the inside out.